Well, welcome everybody this morning to the third and final uh, session in our series uh, on the three great titles or offices, as they're called, uh, of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been here for all three. Uh, I'm delighted to see so many here this morning. You've managed to get through the barriers um, that are placed uh, in our way uh, by the forces ranged against us. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's really good to see you. Uh, last week I said something before I began about this book that I've been writing uh, and draw, drew your attention to that. Uh, I've, this week I brought uh, some information about the Divinity School where I teach uh, at Beeson. Many of you will know it. Uh, of course, from personal experience, and others may wonder what on earth it is and what it does. I've just put some uh, leaflets over there on the desk. If anyone uh, is at all interested in it uh, and wants to know more about it, what we do, and um, how we seek to serve people, not just here in Birmingham, but uh, really around the world, um, I mean, please do take a leaflet and have a look at it uh, for yourself, because, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have about it. Anyhow, today, uh, Jesus Christ as King, uh, I've got two passages from the Bible I want to uh, read to you briefly. The first of them is from Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 7, uh, which reads this, like this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome. And he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. And the second passage I want to read to you is from the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, 
and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. May we just bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, be with us this morning, I pray, as, and help me to speak your word this day. Help us to see clearly the Son of Man, high and lifted up in his glory, that we might truly worship him and do all that he has commanded us to do, our prophet our priest and our king, for whose sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Looking back then over the past couple of weeks and trying to bring things together a bit, uh, we talked first of all about Jesus Christ as prophet, someone who came into the world bearing the word of God to communicate that word uh, to Israel uh, at a time uh, of great national need and indeed uh, crisis, uh, one might say. Where was Israel going? What was it doing? Uh, what was it expecting in the world? And he came with the message of God. He came as the message of God because he was the word made flesh, uh, the, the prophecy fulfilled in his own person and in his life and work. But this was something coming down from heaven, the Son of God coming down, the Word made flesh. And then last week we looked at Jesus Christ as priest and I pointed out that had it not been for human sin, uh, there would have been no need of a priest because a priest is someone who offers sacrifice. A sacrifice is offered for sin uh, and of course without sin uh, none of that would have been necessary. And so what we see in the mission of Jesus Christ as priest is the mission of the Son of Man, the one who comes down from heaven uh, to become a man in order to be uh, the priest and sacrifice uh, for our salvation. What we see today is how these two things come together, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the prophetic word and the priestly sacrifice combined 
in Jesus Christ the King. Now if you get in your time machine and go back to ancient Israel, go back to the time of Jesus himself, how many people do you suppose were looking for a prophet? There would have been some. Uh, John the Baptist was a prophet and of course John the Baptist had his followers. But prophets are always very inconvenient people because they tend to tell the truth. Uh, and this is not something people like to hear. Uh, and of course, in John the Baptist's case, we know what happened to him. Uh, you know, he got beheaded on a whim, really. I mean, it was a terrible thing that happened. Uh, but uh, his mission, uh, you might say, uh, ended uh, nowhere. Uh, he disappeared. There was, there's never been a, a following. There's no sort of church of John the Baptist um, or anything like that. Uh, his, whole, his entire purpose was to prepare the way for the Messiah who was to come. So although there were some people who were looking perhaps for prophets and would accept them, not very many. Nobody was looking for a priest. Uh, there were enough of them around already uh, and they didn't want one more. Uh, and of course Jesus would have been in very big trouble if he'd gone around claiming to be a priest uh, in his lifetime because not only would that uh, go against uh, the Mosaic law where the priests had to come from the family of, of Aaron uh, but uh, it would have been an open challenge to the power uh, that the priests actually had uh, in his lifetime among the people and Jesus uh, of course did get into trouble uh, with the priests in the temple at Jerusalem uh, but he was always very careful to respect them uh, and to accept them within the limits of what they were called to do. Now, what the ordinary person was expecting was a king, uh, was the return of uh, a member of the family of David, David to whom Israel had been promised uh, a, a kingdom that would last forever, it says in the Old Testament. You see that uh, there will be someone from your family who will reign over Israel uh, forever. And of course, the, the hard reality uh, of uh, of history uh, said something rather different uh, that uh, although David's son Solomon did indeed reign over Israel after him and was in many ways greater than his father because it was Solomon who built the temple uh, Solomon too came to a bad end uh, he made the mistake of listening to his wives uh, bad enough to listen to one but he had something like 300 or 700, 700 and 300 concubines uh, whether they all agreed I hate to think but anyhow um, <laughs> Solomon uh, uh, you know sort of came unstuck as you can imagine uh, with that uh, and indeed uh, the kingship in Israel over the next few centuries uh, was not really a very successful enterprise. I mean, there were one or two good ones who appeared from time to time, but most of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, as it says in the scriptures. And of course, in the end, um, Jerusalem uh, was uh, destroyed, um, the, the temple was uh, burnt down, uh, and the people were taken away into exile, and that was the end of that. Uh, so, what was going to happen? Where was this going to come from? And yet, of course, this hope uh, was always there in Israel, uh, that somebody would come along, someone would come along to lead the people, to bring them together, uh, to raise the standard of revolt 
against whatever foreign power uh, was dominating them at that particular time and set them free, restore uh, the old days of David and Solomon once again. And that's what people wanted. That's what people expected. If you read the Gospels, that's the way Jesus is presented uh, in them more than anything else. The son of David, uh, you know, a greater than Solomon is here, uh, uh, as Jesus uh, said of himself. Uh, and so this aspect of what um, uh, he, he, was, he was doing and what was expected is very much uh, a part of the Gospel ministry. But right from the very beginning, Jesus was taken into the wilderness uh, and tempted of Satan. And one of the temptations of the devil, the devil took him up to a high mountain to the top of the temple, showed him the kingdoms of the world, and said, all these can be yours if you just bow down and worship me. So the temptation was given to Jesus from the very beginning of his public ministry. Is this the way you want to go? Is this what you are going to do? Are you going to, do, to bring back the glory of Solomon and his temple? And it must have been a very strong temptation, not least because this is what people expected. You know, uh, if uh, you, you go out into uh, any kind of uh, public uh, service, public ministry, of course, pleasing the crowd um, is always a very satisfying phenomenon, as long as it lasts. Uh, of course, as we know, crowds can be very fickle. Uh, I don't have to go very far, but, uh, you know, I think it was, what, four years ago, people in this country voted for the Messiah, uh, and look what's happened. You know, uh, I mean, it is astonishing, isn't it, how quickly uh, popular, popular mood can swing in the opposite direction. Uh, because those who come, uh, you see, with promises uh, and with potential and so on, uh, it very soon turns out uh, that uh, it does, things don't work like that. Uh, and people can go the other way very quickly. And that indeed happened uh, in the case of Jesus himself. It was a false uh, God, uh, you see, that was pr proposing this kind of thing for him. And had he gone that way, uh, his ministry would have been a disaster. He would have been submitting to the power of Satan. But Jesus did come into the world as king. Jesus was, after all, the Son of God. And it tells us in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and there was nothing made that was not made in and through him. And then it goes on to say, he came to his own, and his own received him not. In other words, he came to what belonged to him, uh, into the world. I mean, he didn't come as a beggar. He came, in one sense, uh, as the sovereign Lord, and he was rejected. You see, But nevertheless, the fact that he was rejected by the people did not alter the, uh, the, his mission or his power. Because it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory in the flesh of the only begotten Son of the Father. So everything Jesus said and did in his entirely, entire earthly ministry was a working out of this sovereign divine power which he brought with him into the world. 
And of course, at different times, he demonstrated this. His miracles are, in effect, a demonstration of his sovereignty, of his power, of his kingship, because there is no power in heaven or on earth which can withstand him. And he, he showed that uh, in many different ways at different times, uh, you know, when uh, various things happened which might seem to challenge this authority and what he was doing. So, uh, the kingship of Jesus is something that he brought with him uh, into the world. The kingship was also something that God had created uh, in, a for, in a way uh, from the very beginning. Why? Because he made Adam and Eve in his own image and likeness and gave them dominion over the creatures. This dominion, you see, this power uh, over the creatures was given uh, to our uh, first human ancestors. And, of course, as the human race spread and developed, uh, this uh, took many different forms, as we know, uh, but there has always been uh, at some uh, sense of, uh, of law and order and government. And when you have law and order and government, you inevitably are going to have somebody who has authority over somebody else. It doesn't work otherwise. And of course, uh, our societies, our human societies, can only function in the way that they do because we accept the authority of others. And this is a right and a good thing to do. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, uh, for example, in that passage that I read out, um, I mean, he tells people to do things that they don't want to do, like pay their taxes, you know, obey the authorities. And you have to remember that Paul was not writing uh, about people uh, that you could vote out of office if you thought they were misspending the taxes, you know, Paul was writing about people like the Emperor Nero, uh, whose uh, you know taste in sort of in human blood uh, and so on was well known, uh, whose uh, method of spending money uh, would make uh, even a governor of Alabama blush. Um, uh, you know, at times, I mean, uh, no accountability to anybody in any way, shape, or form, uh, and yet. Paul is saying you must submit to the authorities because these authorities are appointed by God. You see, uh, they may not have been chosen by you, uh, but there they are. Uh, and the reason he says this, of course, is that he says because God has appointed this way of doing things uh, for the good of the world as a whole. Of course, the, this power has been abused. Uh, this power uh, is always abused in one way or another by somebody uh, when they get it. Uh, but that does not take away uh, the fact that such a power must exist. And so Jesus himself in his earthly life respected these powers. When he was called up before Herod and Pilate and so on, he never said uh, that they were illegitimate. <coughs> He never uh, tried to pretend uh, you know, that they weren't put there uh, for the purpose which they had, even though, of course, when you read the story of his trial and crucifixion and so on, you see very clearly how those powers misused uh, the authority which had been given to them, how they condemned an innocent man and did so, of course, for essentially political reasons. Uh, I mean, the Pilate's famous washing his hands uh, of responsibility 
uh, is the classic case, if you like, of the politician uh, who sacrifices the innocent one in order to save his own skin. Uh, because he was afraid that the crowds who were turning on Jesus would turn on him uh, if he didn't give them what they wanted. So we see this, and yet Jesus never protests, he never complains uh, about this, because within their own sphere, these people had been put there uh, for a particular purpose. Now, he could have gone that way. Uh, He was a descendant of David, Uh, in uh, human terms. And of course the the Gospels bring this out. He was called the son of David. Uh, People looked uh, to him for this. Uh, When he went to Jerusalem for the last time for his crucifixion, of course it was uh, the ironic occasion of Palm Sunday where he came into uh, the city, uh, you know, riding like a king on the, on, on the back of a donkey uh, and people sort of shouted Hosanna, uh, you know, expecting that this is the moment uh, when he is going to uh, uh, unveil his plan, when he's going to reveal uh, who he really was and when he was going to raise the standard of revolt. But Jesus, right from the beginning of his ministry and on every opportunity he got, did all that he could to push this idea away. He told his disciples, my kingdom is not of this world. He never denied that he had a kingdom, uh, but it was something very different. Because Jesus knew uh, that what the people wanted was something that could never last. Uh, That power in this world Uh, great and majestic though it may appear for a time uh, is never there forever. You see, Jesus lived at a time when the Roman Empire was just getting into its stride. Augustus, the one who sent out the decree, uh, you know, which uh, pushed Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem where Jesus was born, was the first of the Roman emperors. I mean, this was the beginning uh, of an attempt to rule the world. Uh, And of course, Rome tried this, you see, for a very long time. Jesus was up against this. You see, this was the sort of uh, power. If he had raised the standard of revolt, this was the empire that he would have had to raise the standard of revolt against. To the people at the time, this must have seemed, first of all, an an impossible task in human terms. If he had succeeded, it would have been a miracle. And of course, they would have recognized this. But what would he have done next? Because you see, Rome, although it, it appeared very powerful, very majestic, and so on, Rome was not going to be there forever. We've outlived it. You know, it took a long time to go, admittedly, But go, it finally did. I mean, this past week, uh, some of you will know, we've been celebrating the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, a a, a very wonderful occasion uh, in some ways, a time of great thanksgiving. But it inevitably recalls the last Diamond Jubilee, the only other Diamond Jubilee, which was Queen Victoria's back in 1897. And I was thinking about this the other day because back in 1897, Britain was 
the greatest world power uh, that had ever been seen, that history had ever seen. A little island, uh, you know, off Western Europe, ruled a quarter of the world and its people. Uh, its cities uh, were imitated. You know, places like Leeds and Sheffield and Birmingham, if I dare mention it, uh, were copied, uh, you know, in other parts of the world because this is what people thought they should be doing. This was the road to peace and prosperity and a future, great future. And, of course, the one thing that the British do better than other people, and I think you have to agree about this, is pomp and circumstance. <laughs> They're very good at this. Uh, and the Diamond Jubilee in 1897 was a great celebration. You see endless uh, troops and, and people coming from India and Africa and all over the place parading down the streets of London. Uh, and it was a great uh, occasion at that time of a, a show of power you see, of the great world power. But there was one person, uh, the archetypal Victorian uh, in some ways, Rudyard Kipling, you know, the great adventurer and novelist and so on, who saw things differently. Uh, and Kipling wrote a, a poem which has been turned into a hymn, uh, which was meant to set the seal on this great celebration. And it's called Recessional. Uh, those of you who go to church uh, will know that the recessional is the, is, is the hymn sung at the end of the service, you see, when uh, people go out. And he wrote this hymn called Recessional. And in Recessional, he expressed his take, if as it were, on, uh, on, on worldly power. And he said, Far cold our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Kipling got into big trouble for that <laughs> because he was raining on everybody's parade. But you know, the little boys who were waving flags in the streets in 1897 20 years later were dying in the trenches of Western Europe. Winston Churchill, who was an arrogant young man uh, parading down uh, the streets on that day, uh, lived uh, to be an arrogant old man uh, who, well, sometimes arrogance has its purpose, uh, you know, who, who saw those same streets being blown to bits you know, by, uh, uh, by the Luftwaffe. Who could have predicted such a thing? Uh, and, of course, the empire uh, which he served disappeared before he did. He outlived it. We can't see the future. We don't know what's going to happen. But, you see, we have seen within modern times great empires of one kind or another vanish, seemingly overnight. Now, you may think, of course, the this isn't going to happen in the United States, but all you have to do is go shopping and realize that every single thing you buy was made in China. You know, hard to find something that wasn't. Uh, and how long is this going to go on? You see, what's going to happen? We don't know. We cannot predict the future. But what we can say is that worldly power, whatever it is, will not last forever. You see, and so Jesus, in rejecting this, in turning away from this, knew what he was doing. But the supreme irony, you see, is that 
Jesus allowed himself to be put in a situation where the conflict with the power of this world, at that time the Roman Empire, is seen at its most ironic, if you like, in his crucifixion. Because who was it who put Jesus to death? The high priest did not have that power. You see, the, the Jewish leaders couldn't do this. They could condemn him for blasphemy. They could condemn him for disobeying the Jewish law. But if they were going to put him to death, they had to turn him over to Pontius Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire, because the, it was only the empire which had the power to execute a criminal. And that is, of course, what they did. They turned him over to Pilate. Pilate, of course, typical, I suppose, of people like that, had no idea what was happening. Um, and, but nevertheless went on, you see, went along with the, the crowds and gave them what they wanted. And then you see this, this terrible scene of Jesus being dragged to the cross. And what is this scene? This scene is his coronation as king. Because it's Pilate of all people who insists that on the cross the words are going to be put Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You see, Pilate is the one who recognizes this. It's the soldiers who were charged with actually having to do the dirty deed. They were the ones who made him a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They were the ones who took a robe you see, and dressed him in it, and who spat on him and mocked him, saying, what kind of a king are you? You know, there you go, king of the Jews. But when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, when Jesus was put in the place where he would pay the price for your salvation and for my salvation, this was his coronation. This was the beginning of his kingdom. This is what his kingdom is all about. He told his disciples, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And this is what has happened. The cross remains to this day the central symbol of our faith because it was there that the new world was launched. It was there that his empire, his kingdom, was revealed. And it is of that that it consists. Because you and I are followers of Jesus Christ because we have been forgiven by his blood his work of a priest, we have been guided by uh, his teaching, uh, the, the work of the prophet, but we have been joined, we have been united to him by the reality of his kingdom. Because just as Jesus was the, the prophet and the word combined, and just as Jesus was the priest and the sacrifice combined, so he is also the king and the kingdom combined. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. Uh, you see, thy will be done. What is this kingdom? You see, the kingdom of Jesus is the presence of Jesus. Uh, it is being united to Jesus. It is being made part of him. Uh, you see, he dwells in our hearts by faith. He is Lord of our lives. Now this is something that we need to understand, this is something that we need to grasp, because too often today uh, we hear the word of forgiveness, which is a very important word, must never forget this, uh, you know, and the message of atonement and sacrifice on the cross, 
but for some reason people don't go to the next stage, uh, which is uh, the union with Christ, who is the, our head, who is our king. Because you cannot be united with Christ unless you are submitted to Christ, unless you are obedient to Christ. You see, the message goes out that we have been set free uh, from sin and death, which is absolutely true uh, and wonderful thing to say. But we need to go on to say that we have not just been set free from that, but we have been set free for something else, which is the Christian life, which can only be lived in the body of Christ by being united with him. This is our, uh, our destiny. And to be part of the body of Christ is to be subjected, submitted to him as the head. He is the head. We are the members. If we are doing things which, of which the head does not approve, uh, or which you know, do, doesn't suit the, the nature of the head, then of course the body is going to have a very strange look about it. You know, anyone looking at it from outside is going to say there's something seriously wrong here. You see, uh, this body is uh, dysfunctional. Uh, this body is paralyzed. Uh, this body is not doing what the head requires of it. And of course, Jesus as the king will come along and say, this is not part of my body at all. You see, these, these, things, these people think they are part of my body, but they're not functioning in the way that they should uh, in that body, and so they must be taken away. They must be pruned uh, out. They have to be removed because they are a cancer on the body rather than a genuine part of it. And this is the challenge, you see. This is the message. Jesus Christ as King has a relevance to you and me today more immediate, I would say, than either Jesus Christ as prophet and Jesus Christ as priest. Because the word of the prophet was given, it is there for us. The, the work of the priest has been done, uh, it is there for us. But the commands of the king are to put these things into practice in our lives today. Not just to talk about them, but to live them out. See, to be uh, like this. Because the king who came, came to take Control. He came to take control of the world which belongs to him from the beginning. He came not only to sort out what was wrong in your life and in my life. This is a very, very important thing. But he came also to deal with the forces of evil in the world which have caused the human race to go astray. You see, Jesus is not just uh, a nice person uh, with good ideas uh, whom we follow around. I mean, Jesus is the Lord, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And this is what that glorious vision in Revelation reminds us of. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. You know, the one who is and who was and who is to come. The one who died and is alive and who has the keys of death and hell. We need a bigger picture of the gospel, a bigger picture of the Lord whom we serve. You see, and if we don't see that dimension, you see, if we reduce Jesus to the level of a great moral teacher, see, lots of people do that. So, oh yes, I've, you know, Sermon on the Mount, that's my religion. Fine, you know, nothing wrong with this. 
but it's not seeing the real Jesus. You see, Jesus is, uh, has died and has risen again and has taken charge of his kingdom and we have been called into that kingdom. We have been called to serve him as his subjects. You see, and his kingdom, of course, will have no end because it is not of this world. And if we belong, if we are citizens of a kingdom which is not of this world, then, of course, it is up to us to think in a way which is not of this world. And here is a, a challenge to you and to me uh, which uh, affects our everyday life. You see, because how do I plan my life? How do I think uh, about my future? Uh, you see, what kind of future do I have? Uh, Jesus was preoccupied with this. You see, he told his disciples, don't lay up treasure on earth, uh, you know, where uh, moth and rust will corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasure in heaven, because heaven is where you're going. You know, one of the things I, I really like about getting older um, well, there are some advantages. There really are. And one of, the, one of the nicest things about getting older is that you know you're getting closer to the time when you will go to be with him. Now, these things can't be predicted, I know. You know, I mean, a 20-year-old can be run over by a bus just as efficiently as an 85-year-old. But let's be honest about this. When you're 85, you know that the end is in sight. When you're 20, you think you're going to live forever. You know, I saw Paul McCartney on television the other day. And they were talking about, you know, that, that song they wrote years ago, When I'm 64, Who's Going to Look After Me? And there's old Paul McCartney sort of on the box saying, well, now I am 64. <laughs> I never thought it would happen. Um, and you think, well, you know, it comes to us all, doesn't it, sooner or later. But a Christian person can look at this and say, well, you know, it's wonderful to be 64 or 74 or 84 or 94 or even 104 because we're just that much closer to our goal. You see, and it's true, isn't it, that as you get older, so your mind becomes more concentrated because you know uh, that your future uh, has got to be that. I mean, just the other day, I, was, uh, I heard one of my former students here, he's got a church up in Fayette, uh, Alabama, and he lost his father. I mean, very close to his father. Uh, and so I wrote to him, he's still a young man, in his 30s, and I wrote to him and I said, you know, you're now the head of the, ha of the family. Uh, I said, and it's a sobering thought, uh, isn't it? That, you know, your father has passed away uh, and you have to take that responsibility. And I said to him, I said, you'll grieve and it's right that you should grieve, but uh, you also know that as, as, as this happens, you see, this is the first time in his life that somebody really close to him has died. And I said, you know that as you get older, the more and more of the people who really matter to you have passed over to the other side. And each time that this happens, each time that somebody goes like that, a part of you goes with them. As I'm finding this in my life, you see that more and more I've got one foot in the world to come. I don't dislike this life. 
uh, and I'm determined to enjoy it as much as I can for as long as it lasts, that's fine. But there's another dimension. You see, uh, the people, as I say, that have, were formative influences on my early years. Uh, my parents and, and, and you know, all the people, adults that I knew as a child. Most of them uh, have gone. And it's inevitable that they will go. I mean, I'm sorry about it, I grieve about it, of course, but I know that this is going to happen. And yet, as I say, part of me goes with them. You see? And I'm looking forward to the day when we shall gather again around that throne of glory and see the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world and, and hear him speak to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Uh, this is what it's all about. This is where we're headed. And when I, look at, when I think about that, and then I turn around and say, well, what am I going to do with the time that's left to me on earth? Now, I don't know how long that is. You know, every time I go to faculty meeting, I think it's less time than I might have thought. Uh, you know, well, um, I don't know. But I mean, if I've got 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, with God, a thousand years is as an evening gone. You know, he hardly notices the difference. It doesn't really matter. What are you doing with your life? You see, where are you going to spend eternity? You know where you're headed. You know, you know that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are united to Christ, then he is the king of your life and his kingdom will fulfill itself in you and you will be drawn closer and more completely into it. Are you going with him or are you kicking against him? That's my question. You know, have you got that vision, you know, in your mind? And is that vision governing the way you live? Uh, you know, the things you do, uh, the way you spend your money, uh, the way you think, uh, everything in your life. Uh, is this the focus? Because if it isn't, you're going to wake up one day in the next kingdom, in, the, in, the, in his kingdom, and wonder what you're doing there. You know, you won't be ready. And Jesus says this, you know, he calls people to the wedding feast, but what about the ones who aren't properly dressed? You know, they're not prepared for it. It will come as a thief in the night. And who, uh, who's ready? You see, are you ready for the bridegroom when he comes. Well, this is, my friends, is what it's all about. This is why we're here. Uh, the, the purpose of the church uh, is to call the lost sheep of the house of Israel and get them cleaned up and ready to go. You know, we're not here forever. Uh, if we try to turn the church into an earthly kingdom, uh, as has happened in the past, you know, uh, and even today, uh, there's the head of a very big church uh, who sits on the ruins of the Roman Empire. It hasn't disappeared completely. Uh, but this is not where we're headed. You see, we're headed to a kingdom which is in another world, in the service of a king who came into this world to make it possible for us to go to live with him forever. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had together now. 
And Lord, I pray that as we think of these great things that Jesus has done for us, bringing and fulfilling your word, making that sacrifice for us that we can be forgiven and that the gates of heaven are open to us, and now reigning on the throne of glory, ready to welcome us into his presence forever and ever. Lord, I ask that you would work in our lives, that you would change our way of thinking, that we would understand that this is where we belong, that this is where we are going, and that when we wake up in your presence, we may do so with exceeding great joy and live and reign with you forever and ever. Amen.